Hey guys, it's Mike Fabares here. And before we get into today's program, I wanted to tell you about an unexpected and exciting opportunity we have here at Focal Point. A generous donor has stepped up and agreed to match every single gift that we get this month up to a half a million dollars. That's an amazing opportunity. If you give $50, that becomes a hundred. If you give $100, it becomes $200. If you give $500, it becomes $1,000. Double your impact when you give online at focalpointradio.org. There are few biblical characters quite as intriguing and mysterious as the wise men, or magi, in the Christmas narrative. Who were these men? Where did they come from? We'll tackle these questions and more on today's Ask Pastor Mike. And welcome to Focal Point. With Christmas just a few days away, it's time for another fireside chat with Pastor Mike Fabares. So grab a cozy cup of coffee and settle in for a fascinating discussion about the Magi. And remember, if you ever have your own question you'd like to ask Pastor Mike, you can send it through our website, focalpointradio.org. You might hear it answered on the program. And now to lead off our conversation, here's Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton. Jay? Thank you, Dave. Yes, I am here with Pastor Mike again. And Pastor Mike, today we have a question about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. In Matthew 2, we read about these guys called the wise men who came to visit Jesus. Who were these people? Yeah, well, that's a great question. There's a lot of good history and just an intrigue, really, regarding the, we call them magi, uh, some translations translate the, the, the wise men. Actually, it is a word that's transliterated into Greek, and then we translate it into English, magi. It's actually a Persian word from the Iran-Iraq border area from ancient Mesopotamia. They're said to be from the east, which is the land of the Old Testament days. We would call it Babylon. And um, magi, we even get our English word magic from that. But uh, you know, the idea isn't so much that it's magic is that they are great. Uh, you know, whether like we use the word magnificent or, um, you know, magnify something that's big, something that's great. These are the scholarly professors of the East. And uh, I'm not trying to say that they're not uh, involved in things that we wouldn't say are uh, unbiblical. They probably were Zoroastrians, which was an ancient um, monotheistic uh, religion that predates Christianity that was probably very active there in Mesopotamia. Um, but they were the scholars. They were the ones in charge of, you know, the education of people. They were, uh, some would even think they were involved in some kind of uh, priestly leadership among the Zoroastrians. So it's an interesting set of people that intersect with the biblical narrative here at the birth of Christ. But uh, a lot more could be said about them. Uh, there's been a lot of mythology that's grown up around them. Actually, in church history, in the medieval period, they named them. Um, they said there were three of them because they brought three 
three gifts, but of course the Bible doesn't tell us how many there were, it just tells us how many gifts they brought. Um, but yeah, in, in, I guess it was the medieval times, they called them Gaspar and Melchior and uh, Balthazar. Actually, those were ancient kings of India, Persia, and Arabia, but uh, there's no rooting of those names or even that uh, kind of uh, story that grew up around them uh, that we can root in in, in history. That's just uh, something they grew up to describe them as uh, three important people representing uh, foreign entities, foreign nations. Now, it says they saw a star rise, and that obviously prompted them to go find the king of the Jews who had been born. What kind of astronomical event was this? Wow, that is a huge question, and it's increasingly debated these days. I and mean, there's been a lot of different theories. Some people have theorized that it was a comet. Some have even tried to find what comet might have been visible in the sky at that time. Uh, some see it as a supernova. I think Kepler was the one who popularized that as an astronomer, saying that's what uh, he thought it was. Um, the comet theory has gotten a kind of a revived um, popularity these days with a, um, uh, a scholar out of Cambridge has written a book on it talking about, yeah, I think he's called his book The Great Christ Comet, which is dealing with all the history of what astronomically was going on, looking at Chinese astronomical calendars and records. And it just is an interesting, fascinating book. I'm not sure I'm all the way there yet on what he calls the Great Christ Comet, but it is a fascinating read. Um, and it's interesting to see all the theories even that he goes through and that others have chronicled through the years of what it might have been. Um, you know, it may have been something that can be astronomically explained, or it may have been just a miraculous something, um, but it didn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be represented that way. In the text, it seems as though this is something in the sky astronomically that wasn't like out of the ordinary. I mean, it was out of the ordinary in that it was not a normal occurrence in the sky every night, but it was not, uh, it didn't seem like, hey, there's this miracle thing like we had in the wilderness wanderings, like a pillar of, of, of fire at night or a cloud in the day. It seemed like this is something that these astronomers, which they would have been clearly, I would assume, in the priestly and uh, prof professorial class of the Eastern uh, Empire there in, in Persian Iraq uh, and Iran area. That, I mean, I'm assuming that they would um, have studied these things. And so it may have very well been that, but I, I can't answer definitively. Other guys are going to be more emphatic on that than I am. But uh, something in the sky led them to Bethlehem. Now, the Bible said they were looking for the king of the Jews. What would make them think that this is the king of the Jews? Well, that's great. If you think about where they were, and I've even kind of set it up by talking about Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River there in um, ancient Persia. Remember, the Persians came after the Babylonians, and the Babylonian-Persian transition took place in the book of Daniel, and Daniel was the prophet who was taken along with a couple of other luminaries in the book of Daniel. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. Those three had come as part of this class of very um, 
hopeful, promising young uh, Jews from the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC, and they're being raised in the palace, and Daniel becomes this great prophet. And of course, so much of the book of Daniel records these amazing prophecies, uh, in particular, Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that would lead you to expect the anointed one of Israel to come at a very particular time in uh, you know the, the first century. So, I mean, there's so much that can be said about that, but I, I think it has has to be traced back to the influence of Daniel among the Persians. You remember Darius and the lion's den and uh, the, the, all of that is just, to me, it's unmistakable that their interest in a king who would rule, as Daniel 7 says, to, to whom all the people will submit themselves, um, it, it was coming to Israel. The king of Israel would be the great king of the world, and I assume that they were very interested to see this king when he was born, and all of it is traced back to the, uh, we're assuming now, but I think we can safely assume all traced back to the prophecies of Daniel. So when they have been studying the prophecies of Daniel, they've been calculating the years that it would take for this Messiah to show up, and then they have this astronomical event in the sky. This leads them to go searching. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe it does, and I think these you know, themes tie together so well in other prophetic texts that I'm sure these um, magi had access to. Isaiah even speaks about, uh, you know, the, the light shining and the glory of God rising upon Israel and the darkness, you know, um, that covered the earth. They're going to see the Lord arise. His glory is going to be seen in Israel and the nations shall come to the light of Israel and kings to the brightness of your rising. I mean, these are great themes of the ultimate figure of Israel coming to the world scene in the first century. So yeah, they were definitely, I mean, I think it's a safe assumption. They were definitely um, influenced by um, understanding something of the biblical prophecies of Israel and uh, coming to see it and pay tribute. And they said, we've come to worship him. That was what they said. What does it say that these are foreigners that are coming to see the Jewish king? Well, again, it comes back to all of the prophetic statements about a king that was not just going to rule over Israel. He would be a king of all the peoples and all the nations. I mean, this is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament prophecies. And so when foreigners come to worship the king that's born king of the Jews, that's a perfect picture of what the scripture had prophesied. There would be one king of the Jews, and he would be one to whom all the nations would bring their tribute. All the way back to Genesis 49, the picture of all the peoples coming to bring their tribute to this one king that would arise out of Jacob. So the wise men, they brought gifts when they found the baby Jesus. Is there any significance to these gifts that they brought? Well, and people have tried to tie significance to them, and I don't want to be emphatic on that either. But I mean, the three things you might remember are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And many have tried to, to make the parallel, and it's not a bad one, that you know, gold is certainly uh, the, the the precious metal that was known for royalty. I mean, it was a kingly gift. It was something that was associated with the throne, gold. And certainly Jesus was the great king. And frankincense was something that was always offered on sacrifices. It was a sacrificial ingredient in Old Testament sacrifices. Um, and I guess you could say it was a, a priestly gift. And of course, Jesus wasn't only the great king, he was going to be the great high priest. And then myrrh. Uh, that's a picture there uh, that some have pointed out that was used as an embalming spice, and it was. It was a, a resin. It was used for things that um, 
I guess, would take our minds back to the sacrifice of Christ on a cross, that he would lay down his his life. So, you know, there there's a picture, I suppose, of his kingship, of his intercession, and his intercession based on his death. Uh, I know in the city of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, uh, they exported the myrrh. It was an uh, anesthetic. It was something offered to Christ on the cross. I mean, these are pictures that you can make and, 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 and draw. It's, it's connections you can, can connect. And, um, you know, it's certainly fascinating. There's no biblical necessity to draw those conclusions. But we can say all of those were... Uh, precious gifts. They were things that would be uh, fitting for a king. So when the wise men come, they actually go see Herod at one point to find out about this king of the Jews. Tell us a little bit more about that scene there. Well, you remember that Herod wanted complete, unrivaled leadership. He wanted to be known as the king of the Jews. He's presented in the narrative when this all takes place, Matthew 2, as, as the king, right? And, and it says that when the king heard about this one that was to be born king of the Jews, that he was troubled. And because he was such a, um, you know, a paranoid leader and such a heavy-handed leader, it says when he was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him, uh, and he was not going to, to have it. So he tries to deceive the wise men, as you might remember in the story, and uh, wants to find out where this king is born and, and claims that he's going to go and, and worship the child as well. But of course, he wants to kill the child. And when the uh, wise men learn of this, then of course, Herod is going to exterminate any threat. So he goes out to see if he can kill this child by trying to kill all of the children two years and under in Bethlehem, which might remind us that this didn't happen in the stable. Sometimes in our nativity scenes, we set up the three wise men, which again, we don't know how many there were, but there were three gifts that they brought. And we put them in the stable in, in this uh, place where you would have all the animals. Well, this didn't take place at the same time. That was There was some time differential between the two. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 11 of Matthew 2 that they came to the house where the child was. So uh, in that particular setting, we know that some time had elapsed. And because Herod wants to kill the babies that are two years old and younger, we can assume it's somewhere in that two-year time span. And uh, you know, I don't know how much of a margin he put on that uh, requirement, but you know, a year, two years, uh, you know, 18 months after he was born, uh, that's when Herod said, we're going to go out and, and try and exterminate this threat by killing the babies in, in Bethlehem. Yeah, our understanding seems to be, or the general understanding is that the wise men were there at the birth or right after the birth, but you're not saying that's probably not the case. Right, it's probably not the case. Not the case because we're not coming to the stable, we're coming to a house, verse 11. And because he kills the babies two years and under, we're assuming that uh, some some significant time has elapsed by the time the uh, the wise men show up. Now, the wise men make their way back, I guess, home after they present their gifts to Jesus at this time to avoid Herod? Yeah, verse 12 of Matthew says that uh, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they departed to their own country by another way. So God, by his grace, revealed to them the threat, and uh, Herod did not get 
the information that he wanted from them, and he led them back. And that's the last we hear of the Magi in the scripture. We know at Pentecost, we have a number of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, or a lot of different nations that are there listening to the disciples. Did they tell other people about Jesus? What can we make from that, if anything? Well, I don't know that we can draw any connections. We know that at the day of Pentecost, um, 50 days after Jesus was crucified and, and resurrected, that people gathered in Jerusalem because of the Feast of Pentecost. Now, I mean, they came from all over the place, and there's lots of, 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 of nations and, and, and people groups that were listed there in Acts chapter 2. Uh, so I'm sure there were some that came from a very long way away. Had they had any influence from the Magi is all speculation, but uh, we do know that most of those that came, unlike the Magi, were coming because they were proselytes to Judaism. They were submitting themselves to the Levitical law and what it says in the book of Numbers to come and present yourself before the Lord at these pilgrimage feasts, they were called, and one of them was Pentecost, where they had to travel to Jerusalem to feast and have the uh, prescribed worship uh, traditions that were there uh, every year on Pentecost. Would these have all been Jews, or would they be people from of different nationalities? They would have been people from different nationalities. There were plenty of Jews that were scattered about, and the Bible makes that clear in Acts chapter 2. Some had come because they were Jews that just happened to live in other places, but there were also people that had converted, and it says that explicitly in Acts chapter 2. They were proselytes, as we call them. They were converts to Judaism that were foreigners, and they came and heard the preaching of the gospel by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and they that was the great, obviously, plan of God to send them back with this message to all kinds of, uh, of nations and people groups. I just find it interesting that we've got foreigners, these wise men, coming from a long distance to pay tribute to the Messiah that they were reading the prophecies and see that he was going to be born. And then we see so many foreigners just after his crucifixion and resurrection that are there as well. This is a message going out to the world. Yeah, and just listen to the list here. When you when you read it in Acts 2, I just pulled it up real quick. Uh, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia. There's the phrase you're probably searching for. That That is the area that the wise men came from. Uh, and then Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, and proselytes. There's the phrase I'm talking about. There were those that lived in other places that were descendants of Abraham, and then there were others that had not descended from Abraham, but they were committed to keeping the law, which required in the Old Covenant to come to Jerusalem for these feasts. So, yeah, and then it went on. Uh, Cretans and Arabians, that's the desert between Mesopotamia and Israel, and uh, they were hearing these uh, 120 there telling of Christ and what he had done and the mighty works of God in their own languages, that miracle of being able, able to speak that language that they had not learned. But yeah, great picture there of the same region, the residents of Mesopotamia. And I'm assuming as the wise men went back in their entourage back to Mesopotamia, they had to have spoken of those events. So that was, you know, over probably 35 years uh, that intervened between those two events. Thinking back on those gifts that they gave, is there anything that we can draw from that in our own lives of what we should be giving to Christ as they gave expensive gifts or lavish gifts? What kind of gifts can we give to Christ in that regard? Well, I've often talked about this passage just in terms of all the things that they did. I mean, they left the comforts of their world. Uh, they left the even the religion of their, you know, 
of their culture to go and worship the king of the Jews. I mean, that was a big, big deal, uh, not to mention the time and the effort and the expense involved in ancient travel. It wasn't easy. Uh, and I tell you, we've got to look at our Christian lives sometimes and say, well, if it's not convenient, we don't want to do it, or it's another night out, or I don't want to serve in that way. I mean, here are these foreigners that really put us to shame in terms of the kinds of sacrifices they're making uh, to worship Christ, which is an amazing thing. I mean, we say we worship Christ, and I just wonder sometimes what it costs us. Uh, we need to be able to say that we stand with Christ and we're willing to serve his cause and do whatever it takes to proclaim his word, even if it costs us. You may have to get in a car and travel. You may have to get on a plane and travel. You may have to give up some luxuries or conveniences in your life. So, you know, I, I think, and not to mention the, the precious uh, things that they shared. I mean, they gave away things to someone else, to Joseph and Mary to, for this child that was uh, expensive to them. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about our own giving, financial giving. Um, it's always important to God and uh, I think anyone who loves God and has a heart to serve God is going to be known for giving generously uh, to Christ. And I know sometimes we're thinking so often about giving to a church and its budget and the you know, copy machine and the electric bill at the church, all that. But you know, we need to think of these gifts as gifts to God, just like the wise men did. They didn't come saying, well, I guess Joseph can buy some, you know, some food for his family with this. They, they thought about it as a gift to God. And we need to think that way too about our giving, to sacrifice for the Lord, not only our time and our effort and travel, but uh, even our gifts to, to give to the Lord is a sign that we, that we love and we're honoring the Lord with our, with our wealth, which is a great, uh, a great pattern throughout the Bible. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust that understanding the background of the wise men and gifts that they gave will, will enrich our lives as Christians and help us to go the extra mile for God in our own lives. Back to you, Dave. Thanks, Jay. And thanks, Pastor Mike. Another fascinating edition of Ask Pastor Mike here on Focal Point. Well, with the end of the year coming up, I'm sure a lot of us have been looking back at 2019. And as you reflect back, you've likely noticed that our world seems to be drifting further and further from any concept of absolute truth. As a result, many feel lost in a sea of opinions, unsure where to turn for guidance. And that's why we believe Bible teaching ministries like Focal Point are more important than ever. Right, Mike? Yeah, that's so true, Dave. No matter how bleak things may be in our world, we as believers, we know that we have an unchanging hope, a hope that holds steady. We don't have to worry about all the just waves of fortune and the changing tides of political philosophies and ideas. God's word, it never changes. It is our anchor. It buoys us up through the storms. It's why Focal Point is absolutely committed to the teaching of scripture, the inerrant word of God, regardless of how unpopular or popular it might be, it doesn't matter. If you believe that it's important to have that kind of voice of truth in our chaotic world, then we'd love for you to stand with us today. We need that. Uh, so we want to begin our new year with strength. We want to be able to close out the books in 2019 and position ourselves for what God has in store for us next. So you can continue to bring hope through radio, through the web, through Focal Point, the mobile app, all these other media outlets that we're using to declare the word of God. And Dave's going to explain how you can help us do that. I look forward to partnering with you together to bring bold and biblical truth to a dark and desperate world. 
Thanks, Mike. And don't forget, your gift today is doubled thanks to our December Matching Challenge. A generous friend of the ministry has agreed to match every gift up to $500,000 so we can expand the reach of Focal Point in the new year. Will you help us reach that goal? Give right now, online at focalpointradio.org or call 888-320-5885. To say thanks for your generous and essential support, we'll send you a highly informative and helpful resource called The Rose Guide to the Gospels. It's a quick reference guide through the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with important historical context, helpful charts, and answers to skeptics' questions. This is a resource you'll want to have on hand during your quiet time or whenever you're listening to a sermon in one of the Gospels. And again, it comes with our thanks for your generous support. Ask for the Rose Guide to the Gospels when you give by calling 888-320-5885 or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer to write, our address is Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Even if you aren't able to donate today, we'd still love to hear from you. And we have a free resource we'd like to send you, a booklet called The Gospels Lost and Found. If you've ever wondered if we can trust the first four books of the New Testament, this booklet will give you confidence. Ask for your copy of The Gospels booklet when you call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again next time when we'll continue exploring the depths of Scripture, right here on Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries. (laughs) 